Good morning. How's everyone? Good. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, we're pleasure to join you in worship and opening God's Word. If you're new, we're so excited you decided to join us. Uh, we have a gift for you out in the courtyard. Love to answer any questions you might have about connecting to our church. Um, if you've noticed, the, the campus and the stage is decorated, uh, which means VBS starts tomorrow. So we're excited about that. And just to give you, you know, an idea, over 400 kids will be here, and uh, we're going to teach God's Word, and we're going to sing to Jesus, and, uh, you know, sometimes that means there's certain kids uh, whose parents use VBS like daycare, you know, and it's their eighth VBS. Well, praise God, they get to hear God's Word eight times, right? And so we're okay with that. We're excited about that. Um, We recognize um, that some kids might come to know Christ, some might not, um, but our goal is to water and plant seeds and uh, trust the Lord for the growth. And so I'm going to pray for the over 170 volunteers we're going to have. We're going to pray that God would give them patience and kindness, um, that they would be able to have strength to endure, uh, that there'd be lots of fun. So we're going to pray for that, and then we're going to go right into our text. So if you join me in prayer, please. Dear Jesus, we're thankful for all the kids you're bringing Uh, We pray that we would steward that trust well. Uh, We would teach the Bible faithfully. We would uphold Christ. We would tell them about your son, Jesus. We would tell them about the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life with the Father. Tell them of heaven. Uh, We would tell them about sin and tell them about Satan and hell and and all of the things that they might know who you are and the great work you've done. Uh, We pray for all the teachers and helpers and volunteers that they would just have a joyous time that you'd give them great patience and discernment and wisdom, uh, that you would give them endurance and strength, uh, that you would give them insight into the kids, uh, kids that don't know you, kids that come from hard and broken circumstances, that they'd be a voice of hope and light uh, in their dark place in life. And so we just pray that this would all be to your glory, um, that we would celebrate you much and that we would enjoy it in the process. So we pray for your words now as we go into your word, your text. I pray you would speak boldly and powerfully through me um, to your glory. Pray that the church would be uh, equipped to love you more. And we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I know it seems like this is a kind of a a theme we're hearing, but I think it's just true and it's true so we acknowledge it, is the world seems to be getting crazier and crazier, doesn't it? And it's just, it's unlike, I think, anything I've seen, at least in my lifetime. Um, But I'm really old, so that's kind of saying a lot. But you think through it, like, it's crazy in the government. It's crazy in California. It's crazy in the schools. It's crazy at baseball games. It's crazy at movies. It's crazy on TV. Uh, Even now when you go shopping, it's crazy. It's crazy everywhere. And so I think uh, what makes this uniquely different is that there's been a little bit of a shift in, and at least in our culture, I think cultures throughout the world, throughout history have faced a little bit of what we're going through in a different fashion. Um, But in order for you to see, I think, how this text is so specifically good and perfect for what we're going through, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of framework to understand what I think is happening. Um, Don't love to be academic up here, but I do think sometimes it's important to get a framework and kind of understand some terms and things. And so I think, you know, for probably the past 20 years, we lived in what would be called a postmodern society. And what that just means is anything goes. 
And with anything goes, it was relatively, you do your thing, I do my thing, I, I don't care if you're right, I'm right, you're right, we're all right. And so you could be a Christian, you could believe God's word, you could believe marriage was between a man and a woman, and no one really cared, right? Because all truth was equal and everybody was right. Does that make sense? Kind of where we were? That's not where we are now. Okay? Where we are now is what's called totalitarianism. Okay? That's a big fancy word, but we're going to read a definition. I just want you to kind of understand where we're at. It says totalitarianism is a form of government that attempts to assert total control over the lives of its citizens. We can kind of see that, can't we? Okay. Next part. It is characterized by strong central rule that attempts to control and direct all aspects of individual life through coercion and repression. That's uniquely true right now, isn't it? Okay, and so I, I don't think this is new in terms of Christianity. This has been happening in governments everywhere for thousands of years. But it's unique to us. And that for the first time, we're not just being told um, to let it happen. We're being told to agree with it and celebrate it or there will be consequences. And so what this passage is going to say is how do you be a Christian, a disciple sent out into a hostile environment. Because for us, for a long time, it wasn't hostile. It was indifferent, even somewhat celebrated a little bit, Christian value. Now, it's convert or pay the consequences. And so what we want to do is walk to this text and see how does Jesus prepare his disciples to engage that environment? And what are the warnings and how can we do it well? And how can we do it according to God's word? So we're going to look at three truths that help us be sent. Uh, to be wise, to not fear man, and to fear Christ. So the first one, to be wise. This is very important. Because when you're in a hostile environment, you're typically going to be unwise because you're going to be overly emotional and not very rational. We operate out of fear, anger, loneliness, anxiety, vengeance. Uh, as you guys remember, living through COVID, there was all of this emotion because things were being stripped from us. And so as all this emotion rose up to the top, there was this potential to act unchristian and ungodly and unbiblical. And so what Jesus does here is he warns them, it's going to be very hard. You need to be wise. The first thing he does to help them be wise, I think, comes from the verse before, and it comes at the very end. Um, what we're working through is bookend by one truth communicated in two ways. Okay, so first thing you see, verse 16, be wise, because you're being sent out into the wolves. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So where does wisdom start? Wisdom comes here, I think, starts here, beginning fear the Lord, right? Proverbs. But look at verse 15. It says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So he says, remember, because back in last week's sermon, we we're talking about, he's like, hey, go door to door, tell them about the good news of the kingdom, share the gospel. The people who reject you, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than what's going to happen to them. So he's speaking of judgment, he's speaking of hell, he's speaking of um, being denied by Christ before the Father. Go at 33, 
This is why I'm saying it's booking. It says, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, why does wisdom start there? Wisdom starts there because when you're persecuted, hated, when you're being forced to choose between the things you love, when the things you love are being stripped away from you, our natural tendency is to lash out in anger, either passively or aggressively. And what he does is he anchors them in the calming truth, God will take care of the evil. God will avenge the things that are done. Later on, uh, he'll say in this passage in verse 26, have no fear for everything that is covered will be revealed. Everything that happened to you will be revealed and be judged. So Jesus is affirming in their heart the injustice, let it go. Christ will make all things right. Look at Jude 7 and 8. It says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I don't know how you think hell isn't eternal or real or forever when you see that. Side note, okay? Verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So it's making a parallel. The people who reject Christ are worthy of judgment just as much as the evil acts committed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Evil is not just an act on the outside. It's an act and volition of the heart against God. You've denied Christ in public, you will not be affirmed before the Father by Christ. Okay? So he's, he's drawing this out. There is judgment. It will be revealed. Therefore, you do not need to worry. Be wise as serpents. And so when things are being taken away from you, when you know, maybe you're not allowed to have a business license because you won't celebrate a certain month, you won't adhere to certain values, or you're not allowed to have medical care given to you, or someone slanders you online. So whatever that is, if that emotion is going to rage inside of you and want to get even. He's saying, be wise. And then what's the second part of this? Be innocent as a dove. What is he getting at? Do not allow your character to be corrupted by their actions. See, here's the thing. If we respond with vile, angry, disdain, and slander in the same way they are, we're doing exactly what they're doing, but just under the name of Jesus. We're not different. We're not disciples. We're not children of God. We're pagans using Christ's name. He's saying be innocent as doves. See, what we have to understand is in suffering, in suffering, we have a tremendous opportunity to witness and evangelize the lost. There is no more powerful witnessing tool than when you have no earthly reason to love Jesus, and yet you do. When you're being dragged out in the courts, in front of the governors, and out of the synagogues, and you're being flogged and hated and beaten, 
and they tell you just renounce Christ and you will not renounce Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that. But when you come back in slander and hate and evil and gossip and malice, you're just doing what they're doing. So we have to wonder and think through sometimes you might be the closest picture of Jesus that they ever see. And what will you teach them about Christ and the way you respond to the terrible, harsh things happening to you? Will your actions model the actions of Christ? See, Jesus isn't a doormat. He responds firmly. He rebukes the religious leaders who are false teachers. But he's also crucified faithfully on the cross saying, not my will, but your will. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we endure persecution, will they see Christ? The other part of this is they might have encountered Christians, and they might actually have good reason to hate Christians. Christian ever gave you a bad name before? You had to explain, whoa, 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 I I know, I'm sorry that happened. That's not what Christians are supposed to do. You might be the first picture of what a Christian should be like. See, in the midst of suffering and persecution is a tremendous opportunity to say this is what the love of God is like. God is so amazing that I would endure this much suffering, this much pain, this much loss. See, our character is our currency. I mean, you would lose your business in order to uphold the Bible? Absolutely. You would lose your family member? Absolutely. You would lose your house? You would lose your status, membership, license, medical care, whatever? Yes. Yes, Jesus is absolutely worth it. That's powerful, powerful testimony, isn't it? That's why he says you need to be innocent as doves. Innocent as doves. So that's why I think he starts with, I'm going to judge the evil. Don't worry. That's not your job. Be faithful. Now, here's the the, the counterbalance to this, is he does say, be wise. Be wise. What is he getting at? If you look at Paul through the New Testament, he not only knew God's word, but he also knew the law, the physical law. He knew he had rights as a Roman citizen. And he knew when he would exercise them and when he wouldn't exercise them and when it benefited his ability to share the gospel with people. He was thrown in prison in Philippi and starts the first church. He didn't exercise his right as a Roman citizen. Later on, you'll see, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve a trial. I want to talk to the governor. See, he works within his freedoms and rights to keep sharing the gospel while not ruining his character. He's sharing with the guards in prison. His rights are being violated. He's done nothing wrong, and he's using that opportunity to share Christ. You can't share Christ as a madman. Like, oh yeah, I wish I was you. Angry, bitter, and delusional. Sounds amazing. Right? That's most Mondays for me, so I don't need Jesus. That's... That's very simple. Wait, you're singing after you just got flogged and beaten? 
Ah, that's weird. Tell me more about that. Why would you do that? See, your character is your currency. Persecution is your opportunity. That's why the church historically grows during persecution, because people get to see a love for Christ that outweighs anything they've ever seen, anything they've ever known. It's our tremendous opportunity. And so to be wise, know your Bibles. I want you to see that you're going to get attacked from all angles. You look through this list, it's pretty, it's pretty rounded out. It says the courts, the synagogues, the Gentiles, the governors, fathers, children, brothers. And then later on it says they will all. That's everybody. He's warning you. There's going to be all kinds of people. And you're going to be tempted to be angry and mean and want vengeance. He says, be wise. Be wise. Be smart. Know what God's word actually says. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be false teachers. And they're going to try to take you away from the word of God. They're going to appeal to your emotion. They're going to try to get you to take away what God said and act contrary. That's why he says in this next part, point two, do not fear man. Do not fear man. The temptation is going to be to use the things you care about to tell you that Christ shouldn't be taken seriously. God's word shouldn't be taken seriously. And they're going to leverage those relationships, whether it's through influence or family, and try to get you to change your love for Christ. I want you to look through this. Verse 19 says, do not be anxious. Look at verse 26. Have no fear. Look at verse 28. Do not fear. He's saying, don't fear. Don't fear. All they can do is bring harm on this earth. They cannot send you to hell. That's a pretty big deal, don't you think? saying the fear must be placed in the one who controls all things, the bigger picture. 30 years of misery here fails in comparison to an eternity in hell. Fear the one who can send you there. And so what he's getting at is this love of Christ. It's going to drive people mad because it's going to come in conflict with what they believe. And in order for them to feel at peace about what they believe, they're going to demand that you give your blessing to their beliefs. And they're going to attack you until you agree that you're wrong and you're wrong and they're right. And then they will just let this pain go. So he's warning them, do not fear. The Bible makes it very clear. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. And it's going to come from every angle. This is why I think you see churches are starting to capitulate or fold or change. I'm hearing people come into our church and they're saying, oh yeah, the church I was at was crazy and they're weird. I'm like, well, we're kind of weird here too, but it's not because of that. We teach the Bible, but we're, you know, we're not perfect but what's happening, they're saying, is my church is going crazy. 
They're not teaching the Bible. They're changing what they believe about marriage, changing what they believe about gender, changing what they believe about drugs, changing what they believe about Christ. Because the world's saying, if you believe these things, you're mean and you're terrible, you're misogynistic, you're a bigot, you're hateful, you're full of spite. They go, oh, I don't want to be called that. God's a God of grace. We'll just change it, make it nice. That's why it says the religious leaders. That's why it says the synagogues will deliver you over. So it's saying, do not be afraid of what can happen to you. Now, this gets pretty thick right here. We're going to look at verse 21. What a text for Father's Day, huh? Anyways, verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's pretty specific, isn't it? The text says what the text says. And I think historically, I don't know if we've seen this come about as much as we have now. I mean, I think historically you've seen, you've seen kids come out of Catholicism and you've seen, you know, the Catholic parents try to pressure the kids that if you leave, if you go to that church, you'll, we'll disown you. You won't be a part of this family. Same in a Muslim family. If you convert to Christianity, it's like, whoa. And they'll threaten to take away the relationships and they'll threaten to kick you out. And there's even some people I've seen come to our church and be like, I can't, my grandmother would be rolling in her grave. You know, I think historically we've seen that, but what we haven't seen, what's being introduced now that you need to be aware of is that California very soon could allow kids to get their parents in trouble because they won't let them pick their gender. And you need to be prepared for that. Are you going to, no, 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 I don't want you to be mad at me. No, 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 yeah, yeah, you can do that. Is that relationship going to outweigh your love and affection and affinity for Jesus? Are you going to say, well, whatever you want, and essentially in that moment, you're going to make them Jesus. You're going to teach them that whatever they want, you'll do and you'll follow. Now, I know that seems maybe futuristic, but let's think about the immediacy of right now is that you see this happen oftentimes in college kids. They'll go off to school, they'll meet some guy with a PhD, cool jeans and nice glasses, a really fascinating Instagram page with big vocabulary. And that kid will come home and tell you how dumb you are, how you didn't teach them the truth, how you lied to them. The church that you took, they, you took them to was full of lies and hypocrisy and that everything you believe is wrong and you can either get on board or get out. And sadly, parents are following. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want them to not love me. And I get it. This is thick. It gets worse as kids get older. The adult children, they even say, well, then you can't see your grandchildren and they'll withhold the grandkids and they'll leverage that over the parent. They say, you will agree and you will affirm or you will never. See, Jesus warns us against that. 
Because they're not just seeking freedom to act on it. They want to be affirmed. They don't want to feel guilty. They don't want to feel like it's wrong. They don't want to feel like it's being judged. And so as a parent, you have to be ready for that moment. What if my kid did that? Will I stand on the word of God? Will I acknowledge him before my own children? That's what he's getting at. Verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father. See, there's no passive Christianity in this. Look at verse 27. It says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. There's no passivity in that passage, is there? Preach the gospel from the rooftops. Declare me before men. Your kids will hate you. Your brother and sister will hate you. The governors will hate you. The synagogues will hate you. But verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you, saying, don't be scared, don't be scared. God's giving you a helper, the Holy Spirit. See, we have to be prepared for those moments. And in the same way, same way, as a child, your parents might go crazy. Mom might get cancer and just totally turn her back on God. Are you willing to say, no, God is good? And say, you can't believe that and come to my house. Where will you stand in the midst of that? This is why it's saying you have to be wise. You have to know what God's word says so that when you come into that moment, you publicly acknowledge the Father. Publicly acknowledge the Son. Through the help of the Spirit. See, these are hard things that we have to think through. What if I were to have family relationships challenged? What if I were to lose my business? What if I were to get kicked out of my country? These are things other nations have had to deal with long before us, true? And the Christians either decide that they are Christians no matter what is going on around them, no matter what the cost, or they capitulate. They change. See, I'd rather have my family. I'd rather have, here's the reality you have to understand. Your kids didn't die on the cross for your sins. Christ did. Your kids don't love you as much as Jesus does. And kids, your parents love you, but they don't love you as much as Jesus did. Parents, your kids can't send you to hell. Kids, your parents can't send you to hell. This is why Christ is of the highest, highest, highest value. But it's also important that you see, I mean, look, look how the verses come together. Look at verse 26. It says, have no fear. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's saying, I value you. I love you. I care about you. I'm going to save you from the wrath of God that you might spend eternity with my Father in heaven with me. He loves you more completely than any 
government, family member, friend, or spouse could ever love you. This is why he demands the highest love. It's why he's worthy of the highest love. That's why we must be wise that when our love for him is challenged, that we always pick him. We always pick him. And he says, my spirit will be there to help you. So fear not. And whom should we fear? <laughs> fear Jesus. You fear Jesus. See, there's a healthy amount of fear. That's good. Especially when you know the one you're fearing loves you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows who you are completely and perfectly. He knows everything about you. Healthy fear is why your house doesn't get burned down when you're gone and your kids are left alone. And it's not a fear that you're going to punch them and, and kick them. It's a fear that you're going to be disappointed and anger. And it's going to bring strife and harm to the relationship that they value and care about. It's a healthy fear. I don't want to sin against my father. I don't want to sin against the king, my savior, the creator. I don't want to sin against him. I love him. See, the other part of this is we can't just preach passages that God is love. He is. He's also holy. He's also a judge. And Jesus also talks about himself in other ways. So we can't just think of hippie Jesus with his long hair and flowing sash and just people singing kumbaya, walking by the beachside, right? Beautiful picture, I know. But Revelation 1, 13 through 18 still exists. Let's read it. It says, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Just right there is scary, isn't it? Yeah, let's keep going. 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Who do you fear? You fear the one who holds the keys. But as the Christian, he says, fear not. Fear not. Why? Because he loves you. He died for you. You have great value to him, not because you earned it or deserved it, because he chose to love you out of his goodness and his kindness. This is why it's saying, be wise, Christian. What the world's going to try to do to you is say, you cannot disagree with me and love me. To disagree with me is to hate me. Therefore, you hate me because you think what I'm doing is wrong. Now, let's just think about that. Be wise. If friendship means agreeing with someone at 100% of the time, you have no friends, not even yourself. How often do you disagree with yourself? It happens to me all the time. I fight with myself. I'm driving like, no, yes, no, yes, right? Like, it's impossible. You never agree with anyone 100% of the time, not even yourself. 
It's an impossible, impossible line to hold. That's why they want to confuse you. Well, then you don't love me. Well, you're mean. Well, you hate me. What? When did disagreeing with you become hateful? Oh, you want to feel good about your decisions. Sounds like you're the one who's being unloving. You want me to change my belief in Christ to make you feel better about your sin. Who's the unloving one now? Be wise. Be wise and fear not, but fear Christ. Fear Christ in the sense that judgment is coming. It's coming for Sodom and Gomorrah, the evil acts, but it's also coming for the rejection of Jesus. Evil has an outside appearance, but it also has an inward disposition, an inward rejection of Jesus as King, as Jesus as Lord, of Jesus as Savior. And that inward disposition outwardly denies the Father, outwardly denies Christ. And that should bring some real caution into our minds. What am I doing with my time? Do people know this? Am I sharing this? Yeah, they're going to think I'm crazy. Jesus tells you that. They're not only going to think you're crazy, they're going to hate you because you're going to tell them what they're doing is wrong and they need to change. And he says, but it's okay, I love you. I know every hair in your head. You're of great value to me. I'm going to acknowledge you before the Father. And so as we're being sent out in the hostile world, we have to remember the tensions of Jesus. Yes, he is a savior, but he is also a king. Yes, he is approachable. He's our high priest. We can go to him and confess our sin, but he's also holy and sinless and perfect. Yes, he is merciful. He forgives and he gives us second chances and opportunities, but he's also the truth. He's right and wrong. He defines right and wrong. He tells us what is and what isn't. He is the one whom we define all things by. See, this is why it's so important that we are wise, but also innocent. Because as our Christianity gets attacked, it's natural to be angry and to feel helpless and hopeless. He says, be innocent as a dove. Be innocent as a dove. Don't take vengeance out. Don't be my sword. He has his own sword. He will bring the justice. Trust him. The spirit will guide you and help you. What you need to do is to be faithful. What you need to do is look in in your hard circumstances and saying, when people see how I'm, I'm acting, could they read the gospels and see where it matches? Could they see where you're going, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Can they see you praying for your enemies? Can they see you loving those who hate you? Can they see you acting in patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control? Can they see pictures of Christ in your persecution and suffering? See, persecution and suffering aren't an accident or a consequence of Christianity. They're the plan within Christianity. It's how the church gets started, persecution. It's how our sins get forgiven. It's through the hatred and conflict of the world against Christ. So he's preparing his disciples to be sent out into this hostility. 
And he tells them over and over again, fear not, fear not, fear not, be anxious not. The spirit of the Father is with you. I will acknowledge you before the Father. Therefore, be at peace, be calm, and go. That is the God we serve, and that is the God we love. He is with us. He loves us. And we are not to be afraid, even though it is to be hard. Okay? Some questions for us to think through. How can you remain wise during chaotic and hard times? This is going to be when the rubber meets the road. Is when something gets stripped from you, taken from you. Do you have the ability to answer in calmness? to be wise, or do you just flip out like they flip out and you look no different than they look? Two, how can you prepare yourself for the harsh treatment that can come from being a Christian? Christian, one, you can know it's coming. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when you don't get invited. Don't be shocked when someone calls on your business and says, why aren't you supporting this? Why aren't you waving this flag? Why haven't you made this choice? Don't be shocked when maybe you don't get invited somewhere, when you're turned away for a treatment or a privilege because they know you don't believe in what they're doing, that you follow the Bible. How can you prepare your heart for that, that rejection? And three, if a family member threatened to not fellowship with you over a belief you hold or that comes from the Bible, how would you handle it? And again, it says, don't think of the member of your family you don't like. Think of the one you do like. Because some of you are like, great, my mother-in-law will never talk to me. Praise God. Bible says so, right? No, 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 no. The one you actually want to keep the relationship with. What would you do? How can you stand firm but not come in anger, not come in vengeance, not come in fear and insecurity? How can you Say, I absolutely love you, but I will not change what I believe the Bible says clearly. And I'm, I'm sorry that you think that's unloving, but I do love you. I do care about you. I care about you deeply. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know the forgiveness of sins. I want heaven to be your home. I want you to be in heaven with me. I want you to know Jesus. How can you hold those tensions both firmly and tightly? Because if you are unprepared, Your ability to have wisdom is very hard because all you have in that moment is fear and anxiety and pain that this loved one potentially might not love you and potentially wants to end the relationship with you. Tapes deep commitment to God's word to be reminded of how to have wisdom in that moment. Four, this is a, a little kind of this nugget for later, but just it's important to think through. Is how would you share your faith with a Jew? And what are some lessons from Matthew that could help you? The, the easy thing to see is that God keeps his word. God keeps his promise. God's gonna come back and he's gonna judge the world through Jesus. Jesus is coming back as king. Messiah king is coming. He's coming, he's gonna judge. Five, what are some faults that you have that could hinder your ability to be innocent as a dove when receiving harsh treatment. Here's the thing. If you are someone that is very fearful, you're going to hide. And in your silence, you could be agreeing to what's going on 
You might be the opposite. You might be, you know, fight or flight. You might be on the fight part, anger, temper. And when that harsh treatment comes, boom, you're going to explode. You might have a proclivity to addiction, to soothe. And when that harsh treatment comes, you're going to go right to that addiction. You might be a gossip or a slanderer, and that's going to come, and you're just going to gossip, slander. How can you manage those insecurities and sins in your life so that when the harsh treatment comes, you can be innocent as a dove and wise in your responses, trusting of God's sovereignty in your responses? And six, I want you to catch this. Why is Christian fellowship so important in light of this passage? Because it's saying literally everyone could be stripped from you. Government, your job, your family, the false Christians that you were a part of, your kids. There needs to be Christians in your life that remind you that's not what the Bible says, that help you stay wise in your mind and not be unsober in your feelings and judgments, that remind you Christ died for you, Christ loves you. The Holy Spirit is there to help you. Jesus is going to acknowledge you before the Father. Heaven is your home. Your Christian family becomes very important because you very well could lose every other meaningful relationship that you care about because you hold Christ. This is what Jesus has been preparing them for for over 10 chapters. This is why he's encouraging them. Hey, I love you. The spirit of the father is with you. I know every hair on your head. I know exactly what is going on. Do not fear. Stand firm and acknowledge me before men, and I will acknowledge you before the Father. Heaven is your home. Take great courage, Christian. Take great courage. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you, and we thank you for Jesus. And we pray that we would stand firm, that when our faith is challenged, that we would not fear people, consequences, we would not fear losing the values of the world. But we would say, I stand for Christ no matter what the consequence. That we would trust you in the hardest of circumstances. That when we suffer, people would see pictures of Christ-likeness in our disposition, attitude, and the way we think, feel, react, respond process that they would see you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At LBC, we take communion two times a month. Uh, we do not believe it's an act of salvation, um, but rather it's a, a symbol, a remembrance that the scriptures call us uh, to remember as we gather, to remember what Christ did on the cross, paying for our sins. Um, just practically, functionally here, we're going to want to get the cracker first, so that way you don't spill the juice when you go to get the cracker. You're going to take it in your own time. Uh, we'd ask that 
Only people who have a trust-follow relationship with Jesus take it because they know what they're doing and why they're doing it. If you're not a Christian, just you know, let it pass. Don't take it. But I would encourage you to pray. I would encourage you to look at the words on the screen. I'd encourage you to you know, ask someone what it means to be a Christian. But if you're a Christian, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this passage. And I want you to think in regards of there's going to be something in your life that rivals your love for Christ, whether it's family, worldly possessions, worldly amenities, and you're going to hold on to it. And it's going to, it's going to compete with your affection for Jesus. And in your time of communion, ask God to rip your hands off that worldly prize. That he would help you not commit idolatry, to love something more than you love Jesus. That you would be able to have the heart of Job that the Lord gives and the Lord takes and that you would bless him, meaning open-handed. If God takes that, if God allows that you would trust him and love him. And you would ask God to forgive you of all the things that compete for your affection for him. And that God would help you love him far more than you love anything of this world. It's not that it's bad to love things in the world or it's bad to love family. It's bad to love anything more than you love Jesus. Because only Jesus died for your sin. Only Jesus created you. Only Jesus can allow you to spend eternity with him. Only Jesus is worthy of the highest love. And so you have an opportunity to take care of that in communion. Say, God, forgive me for these things. I love them more than you. And then what we do is we end in celebration through communion. We praise God that he's with us, that he loves us, that Christ will acknowledge us before the Father, that he is always with us, that he is faithful. He is unchanging in his love. He is unchanging in his plan. He is unchanging in how much he cares for us. He is faithful. So we will praise him at the end of that. So I'm going to pray and take this in your own time. And then after a while, Eloy will lead us in a time of celebration for the work of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us. Uh, we pray through communion, you would remember the great work of Christ, that his body broken, his blood shed, poured out for our sins, uh, is the payment we needed that we could never pay ourselves. We would be grateful and thankful for the work of Christ, that we would hold on to Christ over anything in this world, that we would hold fast to Christ, that we would publicly proclaim him before man, before anyone and everyone. We pray we would celebrate you greatly in communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.